This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is In the Likeness of God. In the first half, we'll hear Dr. Larry Tucker from his BYU devotional address, The Human Body, a Gift and a Responsibility. Then in the second half, David Seeley speaks on Created in the Image and Likeness of God. Here's Larry Tucker, Professor of Exercise Sciences. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm delighted to be here with you today. During a special council in heaven, our Heavenly Father announced His divine plan, the great plan of happiness. The purpose of the plan was to provide an opportunity for His spirit children to obtain a physical body and gain earthly experience to progress toward perfection. We were so excited to learn about our Father's plan, we shouted for joy. Why were we so happy to learn about our Heavenly Father's wonderful plan? It was because our Heavenly Parents have glorified bodies of flesh and bones. For us to become like them and to receive a fullness of joy, we knew that our celestial spirits had to be united with physical bodies, bodies created in the image of God. I grew up outside of the Church. As a youngster, I was taught that God is a bodiless spirit who fills the universe. He is everywhere, yet He can dwell in my heart. So when I first learned that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are two distinct beings and that each has a perfected physical body, I was overjoyed. My testimony grew rapidly once I had an accurate understanding of the Godhead. Brothers and sisters, I love Heavenly Father, and I testify that Jesus Christ is His Son, our Savior. In the pre-mortal world, we learned that our earthly experience would be challenging. Our bodies would be subject to disease, pain, and temptation. Some of us would have significant disabilities, while others would have to live in hostile environments. Despite these hardships, each one of us accepted the invitation to leave our heavenly home, receive a physical body, and do our best to overcome the natural man. According to Joseph Smith, quote, We came to this earth that we might have a body and present it pure before God and the celestial kingdom. The great principle of happiness consists in having a body. The devil has no body, and herein is his punishment. End quote. So Satan and his followers were punished, and we were blessed, blessed with tabernacles of flesh. We are privileged to have a body. Each is a special gift from God. Of all the creations of the Almighty, there is nothing more holy and magnificent than the human body. Worlds without number He has created, yet man and woman are His finest masterpieces. Scientists have been studying the intricacies of the human body for centuries. The more we learn, the more we feel awe and admiration. The body is truly miraculous. Just a few months ago, my youngest son and his wife had their first baby, a boy. He is beautiful in every way. Whenever I hold him, I can sense holiness about him. His fingers and toes are so tiny. He has a cute little dimple when he smiles. His eyes are already sending a steady stream of data to his brain, which is quickly learning to interpret the infinite images before him. His little heart pumps rhythmically to move blood to every cell of his body. 
Over the next 80 years, his heart will beat more than three billion times. Three billion. What a remarkable creation. The scriptures tell us that our bodies are temples. In the New Testament, while confronting those who were treating his father's house as a store, Jesus referred to his body as a temple. Later, speaking to the people of Corinth, the Apostle Paul announced, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He then declared, For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Brothers and sisters, do we treat our bodies as temples? In the early church, the saints sacrificed tremendously to build and care for their temples. They gave much of what they had to build the best for the Lord. Today, the church invests substantially in the temples it builds. Each is a special house of the Lord. Only high-quality materials and the finest craftsmen are used to construct temples. Temple grounds are landscaped with beautiful flowers and trees. Often there is a fountain. Special care is devoted to keeping our temples clean and in excellent condition. Why? Because they are sacred structures. According to Elder Paul Piper of the 70, quote, Sacred means worthy of veneration and respect. By designating something as sacred, the Lord signals that it is of higher value and priority than other things. Sacred things are to be treated with more care, given greater deference, and regarded with deeper reverence. End quote. Temples are sacred. The human body is sacred. It follows that our bodies should be given higher priority and more care than other things. Elder Piper continues, quote, That which is sacred to God becomes sacred to us only through the exercise of agency. Each must choose to accept and hold sacred that which God has defined as sacred. End quote. Our bodies are holy in the Lord's eyes. Do we see our bodies as sacred or merely as an object that we have to put up with? As a professor, I spend much of my time studying how we can best care for our bodies, what we need to do to keep them healthy and fit. Because our bodies are special gifts, they deserve special care. In today's world, it's common for some, even members of the church, to rationalize that they don't have time to care for their bodies. They give little thought to the food they consume and view exercise as an activity only for athletes. Can you imagine how the Lord would feel if one of his holy temples were neglected because it was viewed as insignificant or not worth the effort? The Lord understands everything about the human body. He created it. He knows how to make it healthy and what causes it to weaken and die. As he demonstrated with the three Nephites and with John, he can modify the physical tabernacle so that it won't get sick or die if he desires. Science is a long way from those discoveries. But gradually, through research and the Lord's inspiration, we are learning how to best nourish, exercise, and repair the body. In section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we learn that if we want the blessings of good health, we have to obey certain laws. I love verses 20 and 21. 
There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Notice that all blessings are predicated on obedience to certain laws. Blessings, and for that matter, negative consequences, don't occur randomly. Natural laws govern all aspects of the universe, including how the human body functions. These laws are eternal and unchanging. They are truths. I find it fascinating to watch as new discoveries are made regularly, helping us better understand the eternal truths that govern all that we as humans know and have yet to learn. We know now that much of good health and disease is determined by living or not living certain laws. Of course, we don't know all the truths that govern the human body, but we know markedly more than we did just 50 years ago. It was only about 50 years ago, in 1964, the Surgeon General of the United States officially declared that cigarette smoking is hazardous to health. Of course, members of the church had inside information from the Lord, who revealed this law to his saints roughly 140 years before the Surgeon General shared it with the country. It's exciting to think about the laws governing health and disease that will be discovered over the next 50 years. Before long, I expect scientists will be growing customized hearts, hips, and hair. <laughs> you can see they don't have the customized hair perfected yet, but I'm hopeful. I love to get up in the morning and go to work to study the laws that govern human health and disease. These laws are intriguing to me. As church members, we are greatly blessed to have some of the most important basic laws of health in the word of wisdom. I fear that many church members underestimate the value of the word of wisdom. These truths are not all-inclusive, but there are many wonderful laws of health contained within the 21 verses of section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Given these truths were revealed in the early 1800s, they are remarkable in their coverage and accuracy. However, there is a catch. We must obey the laws to receive the blessings. The word of wisdom is loaded with wonderful counsel and powerful warnings designed to bless our bodies and our spirits. Because we have been told that tobacco is not for the body, members of the church have avoided countless serious diseases and premature deaths. Since the first Surgeon General report on smoking, more than 12 million Americans have died prematurely because they smoked. If we didn't have the word of wisdom, tens of thousands of church members would suffer the horrors of tobacco use, just like the rest of the world. Let me share with you a personal story. My father was in World War II. He wasn't a member of the church. Cigarettes were given to soldiers as part of their rations back in those days. As a result, he and untold other young men became smokers. Keep in mind that the ills of smoking would not be known by the public for another 20 years. In fact, smoking was promoted as a healthy practice. In short, he didn't know better. But here's the key. He smoked. And as you would expect, natural laws govern smoking. Fortunately, when science determined that smoking is unhealthy, my dad quit. 
But while he was a smoker, natural laws could not be cheated, and his precious temple was damaged. The Lord blesses those who learn his will and follow his commandments. I testify that he loves us, and we are greatly blessed because we have known for over a century that tobacco is not for the body. Smoking is not a temptation to most of us. It's clearly hazardous, and we have a commandment to not smoke. But what about exercise and physical fitness? This may surprise you. Adults who smoke have a death rate that is about two times higher than non-smokers. But people who are unfit have a death rate that is about four times higher than those who are fit. Isn't that amazing? Everyone knows that smoking is dangerous, but few are aware of the hazards of being unfit and the protection afforded those who are fit. My objective is not to minimize the risk of smoking, but to emphasize the value of becoming fit to protect our wonderful temples. Millions of Americans drink alcohol, but the word of wisdom instructs us not to. This confuses some because research indicates that alcohol has some benefits. But here's the crucial point. The negative consequences of alcohol use far outweigh the positive. The Lord, in his infinite wisdom, knows where to draw the line. Alcohol is a powerful drug, an addictive drug. When consumed, inhibitions are reduced. In other words, under the influence of alcohol, people do things they wouldn't normally do. Many think that alcohol use is fun, but we can't drink alcohol and have the spirit. We can't drink and have full control of our thoughts and actions. Consequently, alcohol use is strongly linked to higher rates of suicide, spouse and child abuse, fatal car accidents, rape, job loss, and crimes such as robbery and assault. Alcohol use has some benefits, but the costs are too great. Although I grew up outside of the church, I've never had a drink of alcohol. As a high school athlete, I was pressured to drink after games, but something inside of me gave me strength to never drink alcohol. Two of my best friends in high school were killed in separate accidents because they drank and drove. Even more traumatic, several of my close relatives were alcoholics. It was horrible to watch alcohol destroy them. The Lord in his mercy has saved as much misery by giving us the commandment to not drink alcohol. As we know, the word of wisdom contains much more than counsel to not smoke or drink. It also encourages us to eat healthy foods, especially plants. Verse 10 states, All wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Verse 11 continues, Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof. All these things to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. Herbs are plants. Research shows that fruits and vegetables are especially good for us, but adults eat only a small fraction of the recommended servings. Remember, we have to live the law to receive the blessing. Similarly, in verse 12, we are encouraged to eat meat sparingly. I testify that the Lord wants to bless us. That's why he gave us the word of wisdom. If we will follow his counsel, we will have better health, less suffering, and longer lives. Natural laws dictate the consequences of our choices, 
all of them. If we understood all the laws of the universe, we could explain all consequences. Of course, we currently know only a small percentage of the laws. Some are simple. When we fall off of a ladder, there are obvious immediate consequences. When we eat unhealthy food, there are also immediate consequences. But they aren't as obvious. And at the cellular level, damage occurs. Specialized equipment is needed to observe these acute changes, so they go unnoticed, at least for a time. When we engage in exercise, like brisk walking, there are dozens of benefits. We know this because research has identified the laws that govern the effects of exercise on the body. In short, our day-to-day -day choices have significant consequences on the body. Even if we don't know the science behind the effects, the consequences still occur day by day, month by month, and year by year. There are hundreds of scientific studies illustrating the concept that our day-to-day -day behaviors have important effects on our health. A classic investigation is the nurse's health study. It included more than 84,000 women who were tracked for 14 years by Harvard researchers. Results showed that 82% of all the heart attacks and strokes that occurred in the sample could be attributed to just five lifestyle factors. Five choices, smoking, obesity, physical activity, alcohol use, and diet. More than eight of every 10 heart attacks and strokes that occurred over the 14 years could be accounted for by those five choices. Not genetics, not environment, not education, just lifestyle. Without question, the day-to-day -day care we give our bodies makes a tremendous difference in our health. The effect of abiding spiritual laws is typically gradual, line upon line. If we miss our morning prayer, our daily scripture study, there are consequences. We may not notice any change, but we will be different, ever so slightly. Fortunately, we don't lose our testimonies in a day. If we miss another day, the effects are more significant, but we still may not notice any difference. Slowly but surely, our testimonies grow or deteriorate based on the extent we nourish them. Over time, the consequences of what seem to be insignificant choices accumulate, and we become who we now are. The same is true regarding our lifestyle decisions and the health of our bodies. Line upon line, day by day, our bodies change ever so slightly based on what we eat, the extent we exercise, whether or not we smoke, and other important choices. The daily consequences appear insignificant, but when summed together, the effects are amazing, often dictating the diseases we develop, how long we live, and the quality of our lives. While walking the roads of Palestine, Jesus encouraged others to follow him. We too will be blessed if we follow his footsteps. Because he was not denied agency, he could choose for himself. Christ chose to live a life of sacrifice. He displayed remarkable self-control. He learned at an early age to do what is right and let the blessings follow. To care for our temples, we too must learn self-control. If there were no consequences, most of us would rather eat a cookie than a carrot 
or to be entertained than exercise. However, we often have to sacrifice today to earn the richest blessings tomorrow. It may take more than a lifetime to learn to master the flesh as Christ did, but the Lord expects us to do our best and keep trying. Balance is an important part of a healthy lifestyle. Our bodies need daily exercise and a healthy diet, but we can overdo. Remember the Lord's piano has a full keyboard and the best music is played using a variety of keys, not by pounding on just one or two. The Lord is pleased when his saints are fit, not fanatical. On the other hand, in our culture, the tendency is to underdo. Doing too little or too much can cause us to lose choice blessings. Extremists often have distorted views of the body. Some despise their bodies, even inflicting intentional damage. Others worship their bodies, focusing excessively on physical appearance. In each case, the body is seen merely as an object. I testify that these are not righteous views. The human body is a gift from God, a temple, to be treated with thankfulness and respect, not despised or worshipped. As wonderful and miraculous as our bodies are, they have limitations. They wear out. Because of the fall, they are subject to disease and eventual death. It's part of the plan. But keep in mind, bodies that are neglected wear out long before those that receive good care. We all have work to do here on earth, important missions to accomplish. If we cut corners regarding the maintenance of our temples, we may not finish our earthly assignments before our bodies fail. Are all health problems a consequence of our behaviors, our day-to-day choices? Definitely not. Although research shows clearly that a large percentage of the major killers can be attributed to our lifestyles, some health problems have nothing to do with the choices we make. Our day-to-day decisions are paramount, but the choices of others can greatly affect our lives. For example, when I was a young boy, a drunk driver nearly killed me and my parents. My dad, who was driving, didn't do anything wrong nor my mother, who was in the seat beside him. I was in the back. Without warning, a truck driven by a drunk man smashed into our car at very high speed. The forces were incredible. There was broken glass and torn metal everywhere. Our car was demolished. Cars didn't have airbags in those days, but they had seatbelts, and my parents and I each had one on. Our car was destroyed but we were not seriously hurt. Our lives were almost taken in just a few seconds. We had done nothing wrong. Clearly, health problems and premature death are not always a result of our choices. Sometimes they're a result of the choices of others. Our environment, genetics, and other factors can also play important roles. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, we read, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In this story, the blind man had done nothing to cause his disability. 
and his parents were innocent as well. We all know people like him, perhaps not blind, but disabled or diseased in some way. No doubt such circumstances can be difficult. Frequently, individuals with such challenges are spiritually mature and holy. They have endured much. Often their rough edges have been worn away and their spirits have been polished by the grind of hardship. Sometimes the elect are required to endure the most, such as Joseph Smith, Job, and Jesus Christ. Our challenge is to endure no matter what our circumstances are. Brothers and sisters, the human body is a magnificent gift and a significant responsibility. It is our master's finest creation. We are more like our heavenly parents, not less, because we have bodies. Our bodies are sacred temples worthy of special care and respect. Sacrifice is required to keep our temples in good condition. Don't give up. A fit body is a righteous desire. I testify that if we will turn to the Lord and call upon Him, He will help us, but He will not circumvent our agency. With the right attitude and the Lord at our side, we can learn to live a healthy lifestyle, which will enable us to more fully participate in life and enjoy its blessings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is In the Likeness of God. We've just heard from Dr. Larry Tucker. After the break, we'll return with David Seeley and Created in the Image and Likeness of God. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is In the Likeness of God. Next, Dr. David Seeley speaks on created in the image and likeness of God. Good morning. Brother Nibley, one of the great teachers here at BYU, used to describe our lives like going to a Broadway play. Arriving late, we missed the opening, and leaving early, we missed the ending. To complicate matters, instead of being spectators, when we arrive at the play, someone pushes us on stage, and we hear a voice saying, Do something intelligent. His point was that in order to do something intelligent in our lives on this stage, we need to know the beginning and ending of the play, and this information we only have through revelation. In the spirit of Brother Nibley's parable, let us sketch out, based on the scriptures, the beginning, the middle, and the ending of our play in order to help us to do something intelligent. In the beginning, the crown of Heavenly Father's creative work was the creation of the man and the woman. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. This statement teaches us of our divine origins and that from the beginning, the measure of our creation is to be like God. Biblical scholars explain the two Hebrew terms behind the words image and likeness as references to being created in the form of God as well as having His divine attributes. President Uchtdorf has summarized what we have learned from modern revelation when he taught, We are created in the image of our heavenly parents. We are God's spirit children. 
Whereas in ancient Near Eastern temples it was common to have the image of the god in his temple, in the Garden of Eden God is found in the man and the woman, in the image of the man and the woman. The biblical story further explains Adam and Eve's purpose. As bearers of the divine image, Adam and Eve were to be representatives of God in his creation. They were to multiply and replenish the earth, and they were to care for the earth and the creatures therein. The effects of the fall made it possible for Adam and Eve to experience mortality with agency, through which they could become tested and tried in order to become like their Creator. Armed with the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were able to exercise faith and obedience in discerning between good and evil and choosing the good. According to Mosiah 3.19, we too must discern and choose either the natural man, which is an enemy to God, or yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit to become a saint through the Atonement of Christ. Mosiah 3.19 is one of my favorite scriptures. In the summer of 1968, I was sitting with my grandmother Payne at the Manti pageant. I was 14, and it was the day that would ruin my life. We had arrived early, so we had time to visit. And Grandma Payne, she was always interested in our lives. She asked me, David Rolfe, what are you planning to do with your life? Being a child of the 60s, I thought long and hard before revealing my plans to a grown-up, a member of the establishment. (laughs) But I took the risk, and I carefully explained to her how I planned to leave our warlike, corrupt, and materialistic society and retire to the woods to study the outdoors and learn to play the guitar and write poetry. I concluded my short sermon declaring somewhat innocently, Grandmother, I'm going to be the natural man. She smiled at me almost incredulously and said, Boy, are you in trouble. Don't you know that the Book of Mormon teaches that the natural man is an enemy to God? I have never forgotten that day. It changed my life. And I always read that passage with a smile. But I still learn not to entrust your plans to adults. Throughout history, the Lord has commanded his children to be like him. In the Old Testament, he commanded, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the meridian of time, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, came to earth to show us the way to live among us and to accomplish the atonement and make it possible to return to our Heavenly Father. Jesus repeated the commandment to be like God in whose image and likeness we are created. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. In the final scene of our play, the Savior returns in his glory to judge us, to see if we have filled the measure of our creation. Elder Oaks has taught, the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. Let us turn to another scripture. In Moses chapter 1, God dramatically introduced himself to Moses by showing him the splendor and glory of his creations. And he said, And I have a work for thee, Moses, my son, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. Here the Lord teaches Moses and us that he is his son and reminds him of his divine potential as being created in the similitude of the son. He then reveals to Moses the ultimate purpose of creation. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. These passages remind us that creation as described in the Bible is not just an event, but it is a process that continues to this very day. 
This was eloquently stated years ago in a BYU devotional by one of my good friends, Professor George Tate. Wasn't creation completed a very long time ago? Yes, in a sense it was. But in another sense, creation is ongoing since its aim has not been fulfilled to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Thus, creation is not complete until we have fulfilled the measure of our creation. The scriptures record God's continued creation of His children through covenant, and covenant is very important. I was reminded this morning of a Jewish midrash on Exodus chapter 19, where a story that tells when God got the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, He wanted to impress upon them the weight of the covenant they were about to enter. It said that He uprooted Mount Sinai and lifted it in the air, and it covered Uh, It hovered like a barrel over the Journal of Israel. And then God said, Behold the weight of Mount Sinai. Here is the Torah. If you accept it, all will be well. If not, you will learn the weight of Mount Sinai, and this will become your cemetery. (laughs) So I walked in this building this morning and looked up. I wanted to tell you this has felt like a week of the weight of Mount Sinai. Adam and Eve were required to be born again through water, spirit, and blood. And ancient Israel is described as the work of my hands, created at Mount Sinai and throughout her history, as being shaped and formed as the clay in the hands of the potter. And Jesus taught us that we, too, must be born again of water and of spirit. Our lives, then, are about creation. They are about what we are becoming. Several years ago, I began a discussion with the Lord. It has been proven to be a pivotal discussion, a pivotal point in my life. One day, in a moment of serious self-reflection, which we come and call midlife crisis, but some of us in this room know that midlife crisis began the day after our missions and continues to the present, I sat down to determine if I had done anything significant with my life. I asked myself and the Lord the simple question, what is my masterpiece? What is the culmination of all my years of training and hard work? As a young person, I longed to be an artist or a musician. But after years of study and practice, I concluded that my talents lay elsewhere. But still I continued to think of producing in my life a masterpiece. The Lord responded to my question with three thoughts. First, He said to me that my task was to fulfill the measure of my creation, to be in the image and likeness of God, to be holy and perfect like Him. I walked over and looked into my spiritual mirror, and the result was not encouraging. (laughs) He then told me that my greatest work was to be my wife, Joanne, and my children. And then the Lord said to me wisely, But you are not a master, so why do you think you can produce a masterpiece? You are just an apprentice in my workshop. Having always been a lover of great art, there's a little boy in this room who has walked every hall in the Louvre with me. It took us three days. I have been familiar with the institution of the apprentices that worked in the shops of the master artists and craftsmen. Especially during the Renaissance, the great artists had workshops where they employed apprentices to help them produce their masterpieces. Leonardo da Vinci served as an apprentice in the studio of Verrocchio, Michelangelo in the studio of Ghirlandaio, and Raphael in the studio of Perugino. These apprentices sought engagement in the workshop to do three things. First, they came to get to know the master, his values, his personality, and to see up close how he produced his masterpieces. Second, they came to learn from the master by doing. They began to do the mundane tasks, sweeping the shop and preparing the pigments and the panels. 
As they progressed in skill, they were given more responsible tasks, painting backgrounds of mi- or minor figures, and they participated in the creation of the great masterpieces. Thirdly, the apprentices came because they aspired to become like their masters. Remember the Lord's conversation with Moses, and I have a work for thee, Moses, my son, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. In Heavenly Father's shop, we, like Moses, are both God's masterpieces in process, in similitude of mine only begotten, as well as his sons and daughters, whom he has engaged in his workshop as apprentices, when he says, I have a work for you. I believe the metaphor of the master and his apprentices can help us better understand how we can become his masterpieces, his children in the image of likeness of God. Just like working as an apprentice in a workshop, the first step is to get to know the master. The prophet Joseph Smith has taught us it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to have a correct idea of his perfections and attributes. We know that we can come to know the Lord by studying scriptures, prayer, and by associating with others who know him. In order to help us to know the Master, Heavenly Father has sent his only begotten Son to earth to reveal to us the Father. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. Thus Jesus came to earth as Heavenly Father's masterpiece in his image, as well as the image of a man, and through his atonement he became the master of the workshop. What we learn from the life of the Savior is that his primary attribute is love. He loves his Father, and he loves us, and he expects us as his creations and as his apprentices to love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Reading the accounts of the life of the Savior, we can learn what he is like, what he valued, and how he treated others. The Apostle Peter gives us an example of the power of knowing the Savior. Recall with me the account in Matthew when the Savior, who was walking upon the stormy sea, invited Peter to walk out on the water with him. When Peter left the boat and began to go to Jesus, the text records, When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Later, after the death and resurrection of the Savior, Peter found himself the head of the Church. Fearless in the face of persecution, Peter was teaching at the temple with John when a lame beggar asked for alms. Peter, following the example of his Savior, stretched out his hand and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. The second step is learning in the workshop by doing. Latter-day Saints are familiar with the gospel of doing. We do good works. We do our home teaching and visiting teaching. We even call temple worship temple work. The scriptures are replete with commandments of doing or not doing. The Savior simply said, Come follow me. Imitating the life of Jesus, we learn obedience, compassion, love, and treating our fellows as if they were the Master. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. As we become skilled apprentices, we come to realize that the the Master has given us a breathtaking responsibility in the workshop. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth, and they were given the gift of procreation 
to create the bodies for the spirit children of our heavenly parents in the image of God. This sacred gift of procreation is one of the greatest gifts imaginable and gives us the power to work in the workshop as co-creators with Heavenly Father. Elder Holland has described this role as follows. You will never be more like God at any time in this life than when you are expressing that particular power. Of all the titles he has chosen for himself, Father is the one he declares, and creation is his watchword, especially human creation, creation in his image. Genesis 5 through records, And Adam beget a son in his own likeness, after his image. Here is where the fun begins. As Heavenly Father has given us the privilege of creating these children in our image as well as his image. The results, as you know, can both be spectacular and comical. When we first held our babies, we would first greet the new spirit with wonder, and then we would begin to note the distribution of the genes from all of our families. As we raise our children in the image and likeness of God, we are often shocked as they assume our image and likeness as well. One morning, a few days after I finished a grueling two years working on my dissertation, we were lying on our bed when our darling two-and-a-half-year-old son raced into the room and began jumping on the bed, gleefully shouting, I am sure glad that darn dissertation is done. But he didn't say darn. (laughs) Several years later, our family was living in New York City for the summer, and we were attending a a scholarly workshop uh, together with lots of other aspiring scholars. And many of my colleagues were Christians, actually. And one week we decided uh, to do an ecumenical gesture and to attend the Riverside Church with my Christian uh, colleagues. We got up in the morning and announced to the kids we're going to the Riverside Church, and one of our little boys said, Wow, I really don't want to put on my crunchy clothes today, and I really don't want to go to that church. First I pleaded, then I just grabbed his arm and dragged him out the door. As we got to the Riverside Church, we went through the entrance, and we looked in and we realized that people hadn't brought their children to this meeting. The 5,000 people in the church were sitting there quietly, waiting for the beginning of the meeting, And my seven-year-old son shouted out, But Daddy, this isn't even the true church. (laughs) So much for the ecumenical gesture of the Seelys that week. One of the most exhilarating jobs in the workshop is to work with Heavenly Father's children in the creation of families. And it is here that our family has experienced the grandest of adventures. But helping to create Heavenly Father's children in His image and likeness is not confined to parenthood. Throughout our lives, we become co-creators with the Master in our relationships with all of those around us—our families, friends, mission companions, and roommates, our colleagues, and especially in the sacred relationship between teachers and students, where the process of creation occurs in our classrooms. Let me share with you several important things that I have learned in the workshop as we have worked with co-creators with the Master. The image and likeness of God is not to be found in outward appearances. It is to be found in our hearts. In our modern culture, especially in the media, where there is an overwhelming attention and concern given to image, it is almost always a reference to outward appearances. A powerful story in the scriptures addresses this issue. When the prophet Samuel was sent to find the Lord's anointed among the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem, He examined the seven eldest sons of Jesse, expecting to find among them the next king of Israel. He was disappointed to find that none of them 
were the one the Lord had chosen and finally had Jesse send for his youngest son, David. The Lord then taught us a lesson that should pierce our souls. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. The Lord wants us to learn to see ourselves and each other as he sees us, not looking at outward appearances, but looking on the heart. In our search for friends, associates, and most importantly, our future spouses, we need to learn to see each other not as man seeth, but as the Lord looketh on the heart. The other day in one of my classes, I had a young woman introduce herself, and as is the custom of my class, we get to ask her three questions. And one of the questions someone asked this young woman was, what are the three most important characteristics of the man you hope to marry someday? And she said, testimony, sensitivity, and a love for children. And in the back row, a young man couldn't restrain himself, and he said, that's me! (laughs) It's amazing to some of us who are around you that sometimes you are incapable of seeing each other the way that we are able to see you. Another thing I have learned in the workshop is that being created in the image and likeness of God does not mean that we are all the same. As spirit children of Heavenly Father, we come to earth with our individuality. Heavenly Father tells us that he has blessed us with different spiritual gifts. And as we look through the scriptures, we see the way the Lord has used many different individuals in his workshop. In the Old Testament, there was a Moses and an Aaron, a Ruth and an Esther. In the New Testament, a Peter and a Paul, a Mary and a Martha. In our day, a Joseph Smith and a Brigham Young and a Gordon B. Hinckley, and a Thomas S. Monson. In the workshop, we come to appreciate that the Lord's masterpieces are created through a great price. Abraham demonstrated the ultimate faith in God when he took his son Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And the Lord exclaimed, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. On that day, Abraham showed us the image of God the Father, when he, like his father, demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice his son. And Isaac showed us the image of God the Son as he willingly submitted to the will of his father. All of us in this room are products of the many acts of sacrifice of those who have gone before us, of our forefathers, the Seelys who gave up everything to go to Missouri, the Paines who gave up everything uh, to go to Zion and Salt Lake. Joseph Smith taught us that the sacrifice of all things has power to produce the faith necessary for the enjoyment of life and salvation. My grandfather, J. Leo Seeley, received a mission call in 1914 to serve the Lord in Ireland. He left his wife and his little children for three years, and only recently have we discovered the correspondence between he and his wife. And we learned the great sacrifice that was made by these two individuals for the building of the kingdom of God. Upon my grandfather's return, he grabbed my grandmother in an embrace, and his daughter Ina, our Aunt Ina, who is going to turn a hundred this year, my Aunt Ina leapt to her feet, and she rushed to my grandmother, and she chastised this familiar, uh, this unfamiliar man, saying. You naughty man, leave my mother alone. Because of the power of this man's example and my noble grandmother, my father served a mission, and over 50 of his grandchildren and now his great-grandchildren have gone forth to serve the Lord in missions 
in missions that cover the world. Great-great-grandfather Bramwell crossed the plains seven times in his five missions. That's a math problem, actually. Two of his missions he was living in England for. And great-grandma Assumption began a tradition of sister missionary service in our family, followed by her daughter, her granddaughters, and now her great-granddaughters. As we watch our children and as you watch your friends and family open mission calls, we see the image of God in a person who is willing to follow in the footsteps of the Savior to sacrifice for the salvation of His children. They have the faith and the courage to go wherever the Lord calls them. Esau is another unheralded example of one who showed us how to shape our lives in the image of God. When his brother Jacob tricked him out of the birthright, Esau was enraged to the point of seeking to kill him. After many years of avoiding each other, there was a dramatic moment when Jacob encountered his brother Jacob, fearing for his life. Jacob had prepared gifts for his brother. When the moment of meeting came, Jacob met his brother Esau, who unexpectedly forgave him. Jacob, looking into Esau's forgiving face, exclaimed, For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. The image of God is forgiveness. The image of God is repentance. As Brother Nibley used to always remind us, at the end of class, there are two things you can do. You can repent and you can forgive. The third step of our apprenticeship is the most important and perhaps the most difficult. Ultimately, we are commanded to be holy and to be perfect like the Master. And as we live the gospel and fill our lives with knowing and doing, miraculous things happen to us. We begin to, be like, we begin to become like the Savior and become like our Father in heaven. But we cannot complete the process of becoming because only the Master can make a masterpiece and only He can make us in His own image. Let me tell you about something I love. There is a fragment of a Dead Sea Scroll from K4 at Qumran that I had a privilege to work on many years ago. It is a piece of a hymn called Barki Nafshi, Bless O My Soul, the Lord. One cold winter morning, I was working in the workroom at the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem examining this fragment. It had not yet been mounted in a protective frame, and a gust of wind came through the window and blew this fragment onto the floor. Horrified, I quickly got a large piece of paper, and I knelt down to scoop it up. And as I stood to put it back on the table, I was overcome with emotion, holding in my hands this precious piece of the past, a piece of leather that contained the hymn of praise from a Jewish author 2,000 years ago. In this piece of fragment, the hymnist expresses the mystery of acquiring the attributes of God. Bless, O my soul, the Lord. He showed grace to the humble. He has opened their eyes to see his ways and their ears to hear his teaching. And he has circumcised the foreskins of their heart. Paraphrasing from Deuteronomy, another ancient text that I love, the ancient author of this poem acknowledges that it is only God who can, through his grace, open our eyes and ears and change our hearts. This doctrine is taught throughout the scriptures. The Lord says to Ezekiel, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. But occasionally things go wrong in the workshop, and we as the master's masterpieces in progress become distorted or deformed. Sometimes the problem is sin, giving in to the enticings of the natural man. Sometimes it is discouragement, disappointment, sickness, and death. The master of the workshop came to earth as explained by Alma, and he experienced mortal infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, 
that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. He has the power to cleanse us, to heal us, and to restore us to his image and likeness. For the Atonement brings about the bowels of mercy that can satisfy the demands of justice and encircle them in the arms of his safety. I testify to you this day that the power of the Atonement is real and that his grace is sufficient. As we call upon the Savior in repentance, we can find forgiveness. Through the Holy Ghost, he can send encouragement and comfort. We as apprentices in the workshop should remember, as my daughter says, often the Holy Ghost needs helpers. We can help the Master by reaching out to those around us, offering forgiveness, encouragement, and comfort. So here we are, at this very moment in our lives, in the process of creation, of choosing between the natural man and between becoming the power through the power and grace of our Savior, individuals in the image and likeness of God. As apprentices in His workshop, the Lord has called us to work with Him in producing His masterpieces, His children in His own image. We do so as families, as mothers and fathers, as sons and daughters, and as brothers and sisters in the gospel, as missionaries, teachers, students, and through service to our fellow man. There is great joy in the workshop as we see the miraculous growth and changes of heart that occur through the power of the Atonement. The eternal and enduring masterpieces that we produce in our lives are not works of art or music or scholarly books or articles. They are the people around us. As we help the Master with his masterpieces, we are engaged in his work and his glory, the immortality and eternal life of man. I find joy in being an apprentice in the Savior's workshop, and I aspire to be like him. As we work in the Lord's kingdom serving his children, we can become like him. I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loves us. I testify that he lives, and I pray that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the name of our Master, Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today's theme was In the Likeness of God, with thoughts from Dr. Larry Tucker and Dr. David R. Seeley. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.